Jesus, we thank you for the King that you are and for the heart you have. And thank you for sending your Holy Spirit into this world so that he reminds us of who you are and leads us into all truth and forms you, Jesus, even in us. And so we invite your ministry, Holy Spirit, this morning. Let us leave here more Christ-like than when we arrived. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. Um, good morning from me as well. My name is Lenny. I'm the church planter, resident church planter here at Grace. We're planting over in St. John's County. My family's moving there next month. So there's a lot of exciting developments and hap uh, news and things that happen. So please talk to me if you have any more questions. But um, this morning I want to talk about Jesus now and about the series we're in called Created to Worship Christ the King. And I love the title of today's Sunday, Christ the King Sunday. It's beautiful to explore him who really sits on the throne when the world can't really make up their mind of who is a leader or a ruler. You know, in, quest in heaven there is no question. There are no ballots counted or anything like that. There is one king sitting on the throne, period. Good news, right? Um, you know, as a preacher, one of the good things is that you get to marinate in a sermon before you actually deliver it. So I spend several hours putting these thoughts together and I could really feel the Holy Spirit just convicting my own heart and speaking to me. And so I'm, I'm really happy to again uh, share this now with you and invite you into this, um, this message I have this morning, really trusting that the Holy Spirit can and will use it to form Jesus in us. We asked you in the beginning, how would you describe worshiping Jesus? How would you explain what that looks like or what that means? Um, well, I remember how embarrassed I was for the first time when I raised my hands in church in worship. I don't know if you're a hand raiser or not, <laughs> but the denomination I grew up in, you know, it was a very normal thing to raise your hands, unless it is the very first time you ever do it. So I remember feeling really embarrassed and feeling like all of Germany's TV stations had their cameras on me. And everybody was just waiting for me to, to do this. That's how it felt when nobody really cared. Now, maybe some of you express your worship differently. And there are so many different forms. And in fact, churches and denominations have split <laughs> over the question, how do you worship Jesus appropriately? Well, I want to propose that none of these things really matter that much. Now, they're, they're nice and good and they have their place, but I want to look at something deeper this morning when it comes to worship. And I want to connect the idea or the teaching about worship with a teaching on judgment, because that's what Matthew 25 is all about. The scripture reading we had this morning is quite a heavy judgment parable that Jesus is, is well, it's not really a parable, kind of, because he won't actually be judging sheep and goats, you know, but, but well, who knows. But still, there is some truth in that judgment parable that, he, that he's trying to get across to us, and I want to look at this, but again, we have to first look at worship in order to understand what judgment is all about here. And um, in order to talk about worship, I want to ask you another simple question. How many of you have children? Okay, well, many of you, okay, except for the front row teenagers and early 20s, yeah, good. So how many of you who have children wanted to have children because you needed little creatures telling you how awesome and amazing you are? One? No. It seems ridiculous, right? That is not the attitude, usually not the attitude, 
behind the desire to have children. Now, I want to make a very bold statement and propose that Jesus did not create us because he needed humans that look like him to tell him how awesome he is. I believe that from eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were so satisfied in their relationship with one another that the universe and humanity were an overflow of that love relationship that already existed. It wasn't a means to an end to fill some sense of insecurity that Jesus eternally felt in his heart, saying to the Father, please make me humans. I feel so incomplete without them. I think it's important for us to understand that because if we look at the world and at how the world defines worship, we, we see something else there. Maybe some of you remember um, Pastor Mike's sermon from, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago now when we were going through the Daniel series. Early on in the book of Daniel in chapter 3, we have the story of King Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar building, setting up this golden statue of himself, big, and telling all peoples, come and worship me. And if you don't worship me, you'll go to hell. I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. You're going to burn. I want to propose that that is not how God wants to be worshipped. I think the world got this little bit mixed up because it has nothing to do with selfishness on behalf of God. So what does it mean then to, to be created to worship? What is our, what, what is our purpose? Why, why do we worship if God doesn't need it? Well, are you, I'm, I brought here a little, a little illustration that I want to try to use to explain what worship could be explained like. Okay? I want to say that we as humans are like mirrors. We were created in the image of God, worshiping him, looking at him, focusing on him, with the intention that out of that relationship we rule over creation. And that whatever, whoever we worship is reflected in our environment around us. Now, there are different ways that this mirror of worship can be angled. Okay? If, you, if you have this angle, you are a people pleaser. Okay? You basically look like everybody else around you, and you just like to mirror what everybody else is saying or doing. That's one way to worship. Another angle is this. You just look at yourself and you think, wow, the world needs more of that. And so you invite everybody else to come and have a look with you. Another angle would be this angle. Now, that's a very hyper-spiritual angle. Maybe it doesn't look so bad at first because you are looking at God, but you privatize your relationship with the Lord and you don't let it affect anybody else. I think it, it deeply matters what kind of faith and religion somebody has, especially if they're elected into a high office. If you ask me, I think every president, king, and ruler in this world should should say who they worship because it's not a private matter. Because the way we were meant to have this mirror angling in this world is at a 45-degree angle like this. Looking up, worshiping God, and having an immediate effect onto our environment, and at the same time gathering what's happening in our environment, the praises of people and of nature, and reflecting it back up to God. We're like an interface between heaven and earth. 
Now keep this angle and this mirror in mind as we come back to it in a few minutes again when we talk about Jesus and what it means to worship him. We've talked about Matthew 25 now. And we realize that the king who is sitting on the throne here is not like King Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament in Daniel 3, but he is somebody who actually identifies with the very least in society, the most vulnerable. And Jesus goes into a length to constantly repeat who it is. I often found that passage a bit tedious to read because they, they repeat all, all the time who they served and who they didn't serve and who Jesus identified with and so on. But the, the point in the Bible, when something is repeated over and over again, it means that it's really important. And so Jesus identifies here in the scriptures with the thirsty, the, the hungry, the prisoners, the foreigners, the naked. And he says, whatever you do to them, you do to me. So the people that Jesus is, worship, uh, is judging, they served him without even knowing it, which is very fascinating. They didn't even know they were worshiping or honoring Jesus when they served the poor and the needy and the broken and the prisoners. And I think that gives us a very interesting insight into how God understands worship. Who we worship is evident in the way we treat the vulnerable. From God's perspective, again, who we worship is evident in the way we treat the most vulnerable people around us. I think this is one of the main things that Jesus is after here in today's reading. Loving the, the, loving the vulnerable is really like worship to God. Now, it's not maybe the only way, but according to this judgment parable, it is a very important way. The way we love people, the way we love the vulnerable in society, worships God. Now, show me a religion that, that has that kind of God. I honestly don't know any other religion. That's amazing. That God would be like that. And why is that? I believe it's because by reaching the vulnerable, by reaching the needy, we are directly reflecting and mirroring the one who sits on the throne. If we truly worship Jesus, if we truly reflect him, we can't help but love people. We can't help but be drawn to the, the needy and the poor. Because the one that we're reflecting has modeled that in the best way ever. That brings us to the Old Testament scripture, Ezekiel 34. I don't know if you happen to count how many times God says, I will, I will, I will. So this is the king, this is the judge himself speaking. I, I summarized it here. He said, I myself will search for my sheep. I will rescue them. I will bring them out. I will feed them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the, the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. I will, I will, I will. God is describing himself and his character here. And then Jesus, when he comes to earth, in John chapter 10, he adds to that in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life 
for his sheep. When Jesus came, he modeled a, a God who is constantly laying his life down and touching the lepers and reaching the poor and multiplying food and healing the sick. And in the end, is crucified on a cross between two thieves. When the disciples asked him, hey, Jesus, when are you setting up your throne in Jerusalem? And by the way, can John and James, can we brothers sit next to you on your left and right when you set up your throne? Do you remember that story, you know, when they tried to kind of sneak their way in there? And Jesus says, you guys have no idea because my throne does not look like the thrones of this earth. My, my, my throne is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. And by the way, the ones who are next to me on the left and right, guess what? They're going to be thieves. That's the kind of God that we worship that sits on the throne right now. And we as true worshipers have to reflect that attitude. Unless we're worshiping somebody else, then we will reflect whoever else's attitude. So, who we worship is evident in the way we treat the vulnerable. I think it's important that we take this time to look at the judge and to to learn what worship is about and to learn about the character of the judge because only then can we, can we attempt to understand his judgments. If we don't understand the judge, if we don't see his character and his attitude, his judgments might put us off or we might misunderstand them or we might misrepresent him to the world. That's why I believe worship and understanding who we worship and judgment are directly linked together. But let's talk about judgment now. A little bit of a scary word, isn't it? Judgment. <laughs> well, I want to talk about two questions as we talk about judgment. The first question is, who is Jesus judging here in this parable? And the second question is, what is God's judgment against? So the first question, who is God judging? It's very interesting, but Jesus is judging the nations in this parable. If you read carefully in the first two verses... He's talking about the Gentile nations that will appear before his throne. And he has a Jewish audience when he talks about that. Okay, keep that in mind. He's talking to Jews in their self-understanding. They were the chosen ones. They were the ones who were saved because they got circumcised and they were proper Jews. They were in. Everybody else was out. Now Jesus comes and tries to stretch their imagination and broadening their horizon a little bit by saying, all right, I'm going to tell you what judgment day will look like for all those that you think are out. All the Gentile nations will appear before me and then I will judge them and then you know the rest of the parable according to all these kind of things. I think it was a bit of a shocking moment maybe for some of the people in his audience to hear that. But Jesus already hinted at that earlier in his ministry. Again, in John 10, verse 16, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Throughout his ministry, Jesus pointed out every now and then that being born a Jew is not what gets you to heaven. There are other things God is looking at. There are other sheep out there that you have no idea of that I already know. I'm going to call them and draw them in. And this is how you will recognize them. They will feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked. This is how you can identify some of my sheep. 
There's an interesting story of an individual here in Acts chapter 10. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's about a Roman centurion called Cornelius. He is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household and he gave alms generously and he prayed continually to God. And then one day an angel appears to him in Acts chapter 10 verses 3 and 4 and I'm going to read to you what it says here. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. <laughs> you know, we're about to have Christmas, and I don't know about you, but in Germany we have these little nice angels with golden wings, look like little newborn babies, fat cheeks. Do you do that here? I don't know. But that's certainly not the kind of angel Cornelius saw here. Um, because he was in terror. Anyway, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, who Cornelius worshipped was evident in the way he treated the vulnerable. The angel points it out. He says, you worship God and God has taken notice of the alms that you give to the poor. I think it's fascinating. Of all the things the angel could say, he says, well done. Thank you for serving the least around you. This is true worship, Cornelius. Now, I don't want to suggest, and be very careful, I don't want to suggest that you earn your way into heaven by feeding the poor and, and doing all these self-sacrificial things. That's not what this scripture is about. This is not a recipe to salvation or a recipe of how you make it into heaven. You must feed so and so many hungry people and visit so and so many prisoners. That's not what this is all about. The point Jesus, again, the point Jesus is simply trying to make here is that it will be evident who you worship by the way you treat the vulnerable. It's going to be evident. So, who are you worshiping? And so second, the second question, this is the question, who is God judging? The Gentile nations. And the second question is, what is his judgment against? Well, it's a simple answer, and we've already touched on it a few times, but it is basically the selfishness, the indifference, and the hardness of heart that we, that we humans can fall into so easily. God is going to use judgment day to cleanse his creation from everything that distorts his image. Judgment Day is the big spring clean day. None of you would hang up pictures and paintings in your home, in your house, that, that distort you. I mean, many of you have pictures of yourself or your families in your house, right? Would you go and Photoshop your pictures and make like little horns on there and like mean faces and then say, oh, it's so pretty? No, it seems stupid. And in the same way, God is going to cleanse this creation from everything that distorts his image. All the pictures out there that just don't look like him. He's going to say, judgment. I'm not going to tolerate that in my house any longer. Why? Because he is the most humble, most loving, most self-sacrificial being in the entire universe. And he wants his creation to reflect that and to mirror that. And those who don't align with that, those who don't like this character of God, this, this character who, who leaves the throne behind and, and pours out his, pours, lays down his life, those who don't like this attitude, 
they are welcome not to go to heaven because they won't like it in heaven anyway. It's like vampires. The moment you switch on the light, they fly out of the room and hide in the dark somewhere. Or I've noticed in Florida you have cockroaches. <laughs> the moment they are identified and seen, they run away into the next little tiny hole to hide. Okay, so this is how it's going to be on Judgment Day. <laughs> are you going to be a cockroach? or a human image-bearer of God. <laughs> you know, to finish this, I really believe Jesus wants to just open the eyes of our heart. He wants us to see with different eyes. He wants us to look at people with no judgments. You know, there's this, this guy, Francis of Assisi, who, who started this monastic order during a time when the papacy and the church was really corrupt and wicked. And I want to read a quote to you. He says, The Lord granted me, Brother Francis, to do penance in this way. While I was in sin, it seemed very bitter to me to see lepers, and the Lord himself led me among them, and I had mercy upon them. And when I left them, that which seemed bitter to me was changed into sweetness of soul and body. Afterward, the Lord gave me such faith in priests who live according to the manner of the Holy Roman Church and I do not wish to consider sin in them because I discern the Son of God in them and they are my masters. What is Francis saying here? He's saying, if I look at the lepers, something in me feels repelled and wants to withdraw from them, but I see Jesus in them, and after encountering them, I want to serve them. And the same with the priests. Again, he's talking about sinful, wicked, evil priests, not the priests you have here at Grace. They're the opposite of that. Okay. He's talking about wicked priests, and he says, I even see Jesus in them. I see Christ in them. There is something in them, and I submit to that. Something happened to Francis of Assisi's eyes, that he no longer judged people according to the flesh, according to the world, but he saw Jesus. And that is what 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 is all about, when the Apostle Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Something happens to our hearts when we worship the true king, that we start seeing the true king in the people around us. And especially in the vulnerable, especially in those that society rejects, especially in those that other people hate. So I want to invite us this morning, as we sing a worship song, as we go into a time of repentance afterwards, let us invite the Holy Spirit to, to soften our hearts and to bring the angle of our hearts back into the angle that reflects Him into this world. Not the people-pleasing angle and not the selfish angle. Not the it's-all-about-me-and-Jesus-only angle. But the angle we were created to to reflect God into this world. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, come and bring our hearts back into the right angle. As we worship, as we sing the next song, as we go through the rest of this service, come and bring our angles into alignment with God. In Jesus' name, amen.